1969, musician John Lennon and his wife, performance artist Yoko Ono, were among the most important advocates for peace in the world. Peace on Earth, that implies no violence, no starving children, no violent minds, no violent households, no frustration, no fear. The high-profile pair devoted much of their creative energy to elevating the possibility of a more peaceful planet. Uh, I realized that there's so many articles about us. We thought it was very important that um, we use the space for something like peace. (laughs) The music, the press events, the TV appearances. What was their real impact? And how Yoko Ono has continued the peace crusade since John's death in 1980. The peace work of John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls, and today we recall the several years when musician John Lennon and his wife Yoko Ono were arguably among the most high-profile peace advocates on the planet. John was shot dead outside his apartment in New York in 1980, 11 years after he wrote the song that, since its creation in 1969, has become a fixture at just about any gathering for peace. Give peace a chance. Today we'll talk with Yoko Ono. John would have wanted to go the other way if somebody told him to go this way. And uh, he was like that, and of course I was like that. Also, we'll excerpt two fine documentaries and talk to the producer-directors of each film. First, David Leaf, who created The U.S. versus John Lennon. There was a tremendous amount of activism that came in the wake of what Lennon did. And what preceded him were legitimately concerned citizens in pop music, Sammy Davis Jr., Frank Sinatra. You know, nobody worked harder than Harry Belafonte. But in terms of rock and roll, John really you know, broke the mold. And the co-producers of the film, John and Yoko, give peace a song. Paul McGrath and Alan Lysett. He could spin something out in a 15-second little clip, or he could take it on for a couple of minutes, and he could go at any any comers who were, you know, trying to make him slip up. A, a remarkable tour de force, really intellectually. He pulled it off beautifully for an entire week. I mean, he really understood the issue that he and Yoko had chosen, and got right into it, knew all about it, was able to speak very, very intelligently about it, and uh, held his own. It was 1969 when John Lennon and Yoko Ono were married and took their full-on leap into the peace movement. But a year before, as the Beatles were recording what came to be known as the White Album, John Lennon composed his first purely political song, Revolution. He talked with Rolling Stone's Jan Wenner about it in December of 1970. When George and Paul and all them were on holiday, I made Revolution, which is on the LP, and Revolution Number 9, I wanted to put it out as a single, but they said it wasn't good enough. And I wanted to say what I thought about revolution. I'd been thinking about it up in the hills in India. this God will save us feeling about it, you know, it's going to be all right. 
I wanted to put out what I felt about revolution. I thought it was about time we spoke about it, the same as I thought it was about time we stopped not answering about the Vietnamese war on tour with Brian, you know. And we had to tell him we're going to talk about the war this time. We're not going to just waffle. But uh, that's why I did it, you know. I wanted, to talk, I wanted to say my piece about revolution, you know. I wanted to tell you or whoever listens and communicate and say, what, what do you say? You know, this is what I say. And that's what I said. And on one version I said, in, if you were about violence in or out, because I, I wasn't sure, but the version we put out said, count me out, I think. But when you talk about destruction, don't you know that you can count me out? Don't you know it's gonna be? Solution. Well, you know, we don't love to see the plan. You ask me for a contribution. Well, you know, we all do what we can. But if you want money for people with minds that hate. All I can tell you is, brother, you have to wait. You know it's gonna be. All right. All right. All right. So that's how I feel, and I know the chairman Malby. I always feel a bit strange about, you know, because I thought that. If they, they're going to get hurt, you know. I, my, the idea was don't aggravate the pig by waving the, the thing that aggravated the red flag in his face, you know. I really thought that, you know, uh, that love would save us all, you know. But if you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you ain't going to make it with anyone anyhow. Let's talk about the significance of that step, that song, for both the group and for him. And let me ask David to start us on that. With the exception of one version of Revolution where the backing vocal says, you can count me out, and then kind of echoes in, John was not ambiguous in his opposition to violence. And it didn't matter whether it was revolutionary violence or establishment violence. He was a peace activist. So the the nihilist anarchic, uh, anti-establishment sentiment, while he understood it, because he really didn't like uh, established order either, he didn't think tearing it down and seeing what would happen was the right way to go. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I mean what, uh, are you a violent, uh, for violence as a means to an end? I'm for using all means necessary, and well, that may, unfortunately, include a certain degree of violence. The system's no good. So the way to change it is the way we differ. Now, we just reckon that when it gets down to having to use violence, then you're playing the system's game. The establishment irritate you, pull your beard and flick your face to make you fight. Because once they've got you violent, then they know how to handle you. The only thing they don't know to hand, how to handle is non-violence and humor. 
He was for peace. And I, I think uh, when you step back to the first time he met Yoko in an art gallery, he looked through uh, the frame of, what, of, of how she was presenting her art, and it said, yes. It was that positivity that he responded to. So they were for peace. It's very different than being anti-war from his point of view. It's that they were for something, and as, as he put it, we're selling it like we're selling soap. You can be for peace or against peace. Well, how can you be against peace? So it was a brilliant strategic thing, which really fit into everything that the Beatles had done in terms of when you talk about a song hook, uh, getting a message across, John uh, you know, could say in five words what everybody was thinking. All you need is love. I mean, how much more brilliant can, can it be than that? And And so... When he talked about revolution, he was not advocating it. He was just looking at it and trying to understand it and put it into context. But he understood the times were revolutionary. He just wanted it not to be violent because he, he knew from his life and experience that no good was going to come from violence. Paul, Allen, do you have any quick uh, observations about revolution at all? Well, certainly he, he never wavered. I mean, anytime anybody put up a, a you know, a a cause and said, what would you do in this situation? Would you fight? Would you kill? He, he, you know, he maintained it. No, 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 no. That's not what it's about. That, that a lot of people certainly when the song came out, thought it was a cop out, you know, John, you're one of the leaders. You can't, you can't just categorically say there are no circumstances under which violence is not appropriate. And uh, he, he was saying that. I think it's, it's clear that the song says that. And, and it was a step, I suppose, simply to recognize that it was an issue at the time. But He's certainly saying your revolution has got nothing to do with a gun, it's got to do with your own head. Of course, that was his own, that was his motif all the way along. John and Yoko had that first meeting in London's Indica Gallery in 1966, where Yoko Ono was presenting her art. She told me that both her and John's interest in peace and nonviolence predated that meeting. I was already doing um, a peace demonstration uh, in Knock Thun Festival um, and also in Trafalgar Square, actually. <laughs> and I'll be uh, wearing a bag over me, and um, uh, reporters will come and say, What are you doing this for? I said, Well, it's for world peace. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I was doing alone. And when I got together with John, uh, I realized that there's so many articles about us, about, uh, well, we went to the corner of whatever, you know, like anything, you know, restaurant, you know. So we thought it was very important that um, uh, we use the space for something like peace. <laughs> right. So you recall having specific conversations about mm. piggybacking the message of peace to press appearances. and Definitely, your, definitely. Yeah. It's to try and get people orientated to think peace, like eat for peace breathe for peace and dance for peace and make love for peace you know to just have the peace like a mantra going round and round in your head well they started out uh trying to figure out how to have a honeymoon and when they realized that wherever they went they were going to be hounded by the world's media they decided to turn it on its ear and and, and essentially what began in amsterdam with the bed in there was the first reality show if you will John and Yoko, uh, very much ahead of their time in terms of how to use the media, they chose to, to use it not to sell an album, not to sell a, a new supergroup, not to sell anything but the idea of peace. 
The advertising method, we believe that today's society, advertising is the thing politicians use and uh, commercial companies use, the Beatles use it, John and Yoko should use it. Our product is peace. The idea that you could manipulate the media w was a radical notion, and, and that's, that's really where John's brilliance was, and I think Yoko did have an enormous influence on that. As, as an artist, she was so radical, and I think what John was able to do was, was take her radical forms of expression and use this enormous platform he had as perhaps the most famous uh, per person uh, in the in the culture in the Western world. I've heard many writers and fans speculate that. Yoko helped embolden John to be more outspoken and to take more risks in his music and in his life choices. Do you think of yourself as having that effect on him? Well, just the fact that uh, he felt that she became freer uh, by being alone. What I mean is, uh, you know, not, not in the band. I think he felt um, that he can speak out. Uh, I don't think that I had much influence because John would have wanted to go the other way if somebody told him <laughs> to go this way. And, uh, and he was like that, and of course I was like that too. I mean, we were both uh, very rebellious people, and together we became uh, great friends. <laughs> Ahead, the Montreal bed-in, where Give Peace a Chance came together. I'm Paul Ingalls. You're listening to the peace work of John Lennon and Yoko Ono, a Peace Talks Radio special. We're online at peacetalksradio.com. More after this break. You can find out more about the Peace Talks radio series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls. More now with today's special, the peace work of John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Flash ahead on our 1969 timeline for a moment to November 15, 1969. Hundreds of thousands marched for peace in Washington, D.C., calling for an end to the war in Vietnam. 
folk singer Pete Seeger is leading the crowd in song. Paul McGrath is co-producer and narrator of the film, John and Yoko, Give Peace a Song. Uh, I'm not even sure Pete Seeger knew that John had recorded this. I'm not sure he knew whose song it was. He had heard it only a couple of nights earlier at a peace conference up in Poughkeepsie, which is a little north of where Pete uh, Seeger lives on the Hudson River. And he heard it and said, that sounds like a nice little tune. And he ends up in front of what I understand was then the largest political gathering that had ever gathered in American history. And uh, gets up and sings it and makes it... Uh, the eternal anthem it has become, and I imagine, I'm hoping, at least 200 years from now, people will still be singing it then. It'd be nice if we didn't have to sing it 200 years from now. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> The recording of the song Give Peace a Chance culminated another week-long bed-in for peace that John and Yoko staged in Montreal, Canada. They had hoped to get into the U.S. for their event, but were having legal troubles getting visas, so they went as close as they could across the northern border. From May 26th to June 2nd, the pair camped out in their pajamas, in their bed, in the Queen Elizabeth Hotel, welcoming in dozens of reporters and a few celebrities to have conversations with them, mostly all about peace. This was the week that was the centerpiece of the film John and Yoko Give Peace a Song, co-produced by Paul McGrath and here Alan Lysett. Yeah, we listened to uh, virtually uh, all of the interviews, and we were both, uh, I was. I speak for myself, I was really impressed with his knowledge, and uh, he, he didn't have just a, a superficial view of, of peace. I mean, he really had thought it through. And I think Yoko was a, was a big uh, influence on that. They really talked a lot about it and uh, uh, researched it. Uh, they were not naive at all. If it works, it's right. Yeah. If it doesn't work, it's wrong. Well, nobody's ever given it a chance before, you know. have they? Nobody's ever given peace a complete chance. Gandhi tried it, Martin Luther King tried it, but they were shot. But nobody's no, given... You can't get... Peace in a, in a king-sized divan on no, floor 802. We, we don't expect to. I mean, we're talking mainly to the revolutionaries who think they can get it overnight by breaking, the, breaking down the buildings, you know. They can't get it. We thought about this for months. This is the best possible, most functional and effective way of promoting and protesting against violence that our minds combined could think of. He could spin something out in a 15-second little clip, or he could take it on for a couple of minutes, and he could go at any any comers who were, were, you know, trying to make him slip up. A a remarkable tour de force, really, intellectually. He pulled it off beautifully for an entire week. What would you say to people like Richard Nixon? I'd say do something positive about it, and... uh, it really is economical to have peace, Mr. Nixon, and you'd be really popular if you did. What should he do? He should just declare peace. Peace! Peace. We say violence begets violence, and the establishment are getting more violent, and they're getting violence back, but, you know, they're losing a lot. They're losing. They're not. They've won. Oh, the establishment? Yeah. No, they haven't. No, they haven't. They don't stand a chance. 
Let's be honest, none of those people really came to talk about peace so much. They were, 90% of them were, hey, this is a Beatle, this is John Lennon, I get to be in the same room with him and interview him. And they really wanted to know, what were, what were the Beatles going to do next, you know? Uh, they were still the biggest band in, in the world, and John being one of the most charismatic f- uh, figures in, in music, uh, everybody wanted time with him, but it was kind of the, the price you had to pay was you had to speak about peace. One of the things, one of the most dramatic uh, pieces, I think, during the whole week was when uh, they were having the march in Berkeley, Park. Had to do with People's Park. People's the, Park, the, the, yeah. The, the, and and John was on the phone in uh, Montreal talking on the radio uh, to the Berkeley campus radio station, and it was being broadcast at the demonstration. An extremely volatile situation. Very, very which, volatile. In which people could easily have died. Easily. And he kept the lid on it. He kept saying, no, 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 you don't, don't succumb to uh, their tactics. As soon as you get violent, you, you fall into their trap. It's a trap. Don't do it. David Leaf produced and directed the film The U.S. versus John Lennon. David? The, the, the great irony, of course, of, of that particular phone call is that John had been prevented from coming into the United States because the, the paranoia of the Nixon administration truly feared what he would do if he came to America. And uh, yet uh, on the telephone, he's doing the exact opposite of what they, they thought he would do. He was keeping the lid on. John was not advocating violence. He was advocating peaceful protest, peaceful gatherings, peaceful expression. And, and the, the Nixon administration, who knew exactly what they were doing, feared anybody who spoke the truth. And John Lennon, because of the platform he had, really terrified them. When did the notion of recording Give Peace a Chance come in during the week in your research? Was that in the cards all along? I would guess uh, somewhere midweek. It, it went uh, the week went from Monday to Sunday, and it seems to me, from judging from talking to people who were in there, from Richard Glanville Brown and one of the photographers, that around Wednesday, Thursday, he started to get uh, he started to craft the lyrics. You could see him off in the corner of the room strumming a guitar. The lyrics start to get printed out on these these long. Uh, oh no! Originally on some some shorter pieces of paper. And then around Friday, I think he asked Derek Taylor to see if Derek can, can arrange to get some sort of mobile recording into the room. I think that was his intention all along. Were there rehearsals? Um. Uh, no, there was really, uh, I, I think, uh, just a couple of run-throughs. It, it, there, wasn't, there wasn't really much at all. We do need discipline. These people need air and space around them. I keep this rule fairly clear. As it develops, we may bring people forward to join in. It's as free as it can be, right? They had a lot of setting up to do to make this god-awful hotel room sound like a decent uh, recording environment, and that was the toughest part of the whole thing. It's very fun to watch on the DVD uh, the comments about how the rhythm track was sort of built from people banging on anything in one Capitol Records uh, executive kicking the door to give it this fine bassy boom, yeah. you know, because there were no real drums in there except hand drums and things like that. Well, Full. that shows the, the spontaneity because they, you know, if they had really plotted it out, if he had thought about it 
far enough in advance, he probably would have brought in a drummer, and it would have been <laughs> easy to do, uh, at least to hold the beat. And uh, and but I think it was, you know, without wanting to sound too mystical about it, I think as Paul says, it was about midweek. They started to sense that the, there was a real vibe happening in this. Uh, in this setting, and uh, they wanted to capture it, and they, he, he thought that this would be this would be a great way of capping it off by by doing a song, which is what they know how to do best. Two, one, two, three, four. <laughs>
Yoko Ono, yes. what do you remember most about how Give Peace a Chance came together in 1969 in Montreal? Well, it was something that we decided to do, and it was pretty, very, very enjoyable in a way. I think it's good to do something uh, that is so serious uh, with joy and fun. We had great fun doing it, and I think that's the secret of it. Uh, it, it does uh, sound like that in the song, that uh, we were sort of up. Hmm. Was there much a forethought or conversation between you and John that it might, in fact, become an anthem for rallies or for generations to come? No, no, it wasn't like that. We understood each other so well. We didn't have to discuss mm-hmm. it. <laughs> so there wasn't an intention to make it uh, make the chorus of the song chant-like so it would work well at a rally or anything like that? Huh? No, there was an intention of that. Of course, all songs that we make... Uh, and Joe makes, um, especially if it's to do with uh, something political. Um, he knows exactly what is, should be done to make it sort of simple so that people can uh, repeat it or whatever. Uh, we didn't think about the fact that it might really spread. And that's a very interesting thing about it. Uh, uh, the other um, song, Imagine, too. Um, it was a song that uh, was meant to be heard and and communicate to the people. But um, other than that, we didn't think, well, how big is it's going to be? Or um, it might even last 40 years. <laughs> we didn't think about right. those things. One thing I love about these film clips, where I get to see more of these interviews you gave during the bed-ins, is particularly you challenged a couple of times, there would be journalists or someone would come in and start blaming the government or the establishment. And you very pointedly turn to them and say, no, it's you, it's us, it's our responsibility. Even if we solve the problem of Vietnam, before we solve the problem of Vietnam, another war will be going on somewhere. The whole world would be in war if we don't start to change people's minds. That's the only way we can if get we around. Don't stop the monster if that's bringing the war about. Monster? We we're are the monster. the monster. You are the monster, okay? You're the monster who is lazy and who didn't think about the fact that you are it. We are all responsible. Could you talk a little bit about that philosophy that you were trying to express then? Yes, you know, all of us uh, live in this society, and each one of us will have to do our best to make this society uh, a better place to live for ourselves. I mean, just for ourselves even, but for our children as well, and for the world. I think that everything that's happening now, uh, people who believe in violence, okay, but then the thing is, we're not doing anything about it, or the amount of uh, the objection that we're making is probably not enough. And so that uh, we're responsible too. I'm struck how often the two of you were on television in those days with Mike Douglas or Dick Cavett. Yes, yes. Really (laughs) engaging in deep, thoughtful discourse about peacemaking. Why was it important to make such appearances at that time, do you think? Uh, We were for peace, and we wanted to do something to um, make people wake up on the idea that we have to do something about it. And I think that in Mike Douglas and Dick Cabot, I think we were uh, very uh, wise in not just screaming and shouting about world peace. 
we did it in a very kind of gentle way, I thought. I'm guessing that it sort of countered the charge that you two were just mindlessly jumping on a youth bandwagon or even promoting your own careers. This gave you a real chance to to have thoughtful discourse. Well, you know, the thing is there are always some cynical people, but it's obvious that John did not need uh, this kind of publicity. In fact, this kind of publicity may have hurt his chance of selling his uh, uh, usual work because, you know, it sounds like he went crazy or something, you know. And so he was taking that chance. In my case, of course, you know, I was doing peace work um, before I met John, but it was not really that effective, of course, with John. It was very effective because he was very famous. And um, I was not jumping on bandwagon to sell my uh, work because my work probably wouldn't have sold anyway, even if I jumped on any bandwagon. (laughs) So it wasn't that at all. We both believed in what we were doing. But of course, you know, it, it, it's, it's all right that some people get t- very cynical about anything. Uh, and it did happen. Uh, we thought, oh dear. But then we just uh, went ahead and did things that we believed in. Peace on earth, that implies no violence, no starving children, no violent minds, no violent households, no, no violence, frustration. no frustration, no fear. specifically did the poster event around the world for Christmas to try and get at least one plug-in for peace on earth at Christmas because that's what it's about and happy birthday Christ you know is what it's about. Late in 1969 John and Yoko rented billboards in New York, Tokyo, Rome, Athens, Amsterdam, London, Paris, Toronto and a few other cities with the huge words war is over on them and in smaller print if you want it happy Christmas from John and Yoko. We'll have more with Yoko Ono and with our other guests after a break. You're listening to a Peace Talks radio special, the peace work of John Lennon and Yoko Ono. I'm Paul Ingalls. More in a moment.
You're listening to a Peace Talks radio special, the peace work of John Lennon and Yoko Ono. I'm Paul Ingalls. More about our series at peacetalksradio.com. We're not thinking in terms of 10 years. We're thinking in terms of peace forever, you know. And everybody's talking about now. I want peace now. We can get peace now if we want it now. And the left wing talk about giving the power to the people. You know, anybody knows that the people have the power. All we have to do is awaken the power in the people. Power to the people! The people are unaware. It's like they're not educated to realize that they have power. Power to the people! They put the politicians in power. Power to the people! They vote for the local mayor. system is so geared that everybody believes that the father will fix everything, the father being the government. Government will fix everything. It is all government's fault. Shake a fist at the government. Well, we are the government. The people are the government. The people have the power, but we must try and make them aware of this. Yoko Ono, after about 1972, John didn't revisit explicit political themes often in his music. Why do you think that was true? Hmm. Well, I don't think you're right about that. I think that when you listen to Mind Games, another record of his, and also all the other records that he made afterwards, and this is a kind of a, a, um, not outright political song, but uh, uh, many of them were speaking about the wisdom of uh, us doing something to better the society. Right. The love theme was always there. There was always love, yes. Yes. Uh, And, you know, we felt that it wasn't that uh, effective when if we kept just uh, thinking political theme songs outright. And so, in a way, we sort of in many songs were hinting something.
since John's death, you ultimately picked the Peace Torch up again in a very active way. What are some of the projects that you've been involved with of which you're most proud and that you think have had the most impact in promoting or inspiring peace? I think that the, uh, the owner code, which is to flash I love you, and also the wish tree, which is to um, make a wish and put it on the tree, and uh, Imagine Peace Tower. These three were sort of like a package in a way. And I think, it, I think it's working, yeah. Maybe you could describe the Imagine Peace Tower for those that haven't read about it. Yes. Well, <clears throat> it's a concept that I had since about 1964, I think, four or five. And uh, that was uh, sort of uh, mentioned in um, all my uh, brochures and things like that in those days. Also, it was referred to in the show that I did in London, the first show that I did in London, which was the Indica Gallery show. And John read that, and John was very interested in it. And he invited me to uh, his house in Kenwood. Actually, he wanted me to uh, put that lighthouse in um, his garden, (laughs) build it in his garden. And I said, well, I can't do that because it was a conceptual idea, and I don't know how to build it. <laughs> and I was laughing. And he was saying, oh, that's a pity or something. And then we just forgot about it. And it's just, you know, that was one conversation. And then about uh, when I started to do the wish tree, people were saying, what are you going to do about these wishes? Are you going to throw it away? You know, throw them away? And I said, of course not. I'm not going to throw it away. I mean, I have them kept. And I thought, yeah. I have them kept, but what am I going to do with it, you know? And then I thought, well, we need a little tower that I can put all this in. Hmm, well, uh, what about that, you know? And step by step, I went back to the idea of light tower. And then I thought it was very good to uh, build it in Iceland for many reasons. And so I did. And, well, of course, I had to get their permission, and they they accepted. They, They were very helpful with it and so I I did in uh, Iceland and now it's there and the light comes on on John's birthday (laughs) October 9th and it goes off on December 8th when he passed away and it was very symbolic in that sense thank you thank you thank you for witnessing a humble gathering for the unveiling of Imagine Peace Tower You know, when um, I I was uh, making this light tower, with the help of Icelandic uh, designers and architects and all that, when the light went on, we all were so surprised. It was so shocking because the light just went boom like that, and it went all the way to the top of the sky and sort of like curved with the sky. It was amazing, and we couldn't believe it. And uh, we feel that probably... Uh, it is a message from this planet to the universe saying, help us, we're here. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Okay, me. well done, everybody. Thanks for coming out. Yoko Ono, when you think about that very active and turbulent time when you were both on the front lines for peace, what do you think have been some of the real effects over time? Mm. Do you think artists and musicians more bravely speak their minds as a result of your work back then? 
Well, I must say that it does sound arrogant or something, maybe, but it's, it's the, the reality, it's the truth, that the, uh, when John and I did this uh, about the um, uh, <clears throat> peace uh, work, from uh, Toronto Peace Festival on, uh, we didn't know that anybody else was doing it, and it was like standing alone together and looking around and seeing that we were the only ones who were standing. It was a little bit frightening because um, we knew that uh, there, there were oppositions to that. And then most people were just laughing at us, really. you know. And that was how it was in, at the time. Now, I've, I know that, that so many uh, political songs were written after that and, and sung. And I think John sort of like hinted to people, yeah, hey, you can do that, you know, you can put political message in your song, etc. Ah, and that, you know, that helped. Let me ask our filmmakers, Paul McGrath, Alan Lysett, and David Leaf, to talk more about what was unprecedented about a rock and roll musician not only writing songs about peace, but joining marches and staging press events and going on talk shows primarily to talk about peace and social justice. I know folk singers had done it in song and in action in the 60s, but for the emerging rock music scene, for remember the top rock act in the world to do it so ubiquitously, how unprecedented was that, really? David Leaf? Well, cer- certainly celebrity had been had used and been used uh, in the civil rights movement and many other movements. But this, this was really a two-against-the-world kind of campaign. I did try to think of an earlier situation, and honestly, I can't. Uh, uh, certainly, as you say, those involved in the uh, civil rights movement, I think Lena Horne and Harry Belafonte and a number right. of others, and Stevie Wonder, very much involved in the early civil rights movement. But uh, uh, and, and so we have to acknowledge that it was a separate uh, and extremely brave act. Your life was on the line in the civil rights movement in a way that John Lennon's was not. Every, every time a, an African-American entertainer walked on the stage, he was putting his life on the line. I mean, that King Cole was assaulted at a concert, I think, in, in, in Alabama. I mean, it, it was really remarkable how difficult it was to be, to be in a mainstream African-American artist. Looking back at these events and that time, what can we say about John Lennon's impact on the peace movement in the early 1970s? Let me ask uh, Paul to start. Well, uh, a guy like that, uh, a public figure like that comes out, he, he's like a magnet. A lot of people say, oh, gee, I can do this. I can be a musician. I can stand up. And when you get a lot of musicians doing that, you had a lot of their audience thinking the same way. But of course, they didn't make it up. There were hundreds of thousands of young Americans who were concerned about not having to go to Vietnam and about concerned about the conduct of the war, whether or not they were going to have to go to it. So I think it had that, it was a focusing thing, a magnet. It, it gave a clear sort of trajectory to a movement that, uh, you know, anybody I think admits that uh, that war was brought to a, a close much earlier than it would ordinarily have been had, that, that, had not that particular anti-war movement coalesced, and I would say John had a lot to do with it. I agree. I, I think that we're very fortunate that John chose that. John was in a unique position to influence uh, people. Uh, anybody of, of that age group was uh, held him as a hero. They were going to listen and take seriously just about anything the guy said. And if he had been advocating war, who knows how many people would have gone <laughs> along with him. I mean, he, I think he had that kind of power. He could have been advocating anything, but he happened to choose peace and, and were much better off 
for it. Uh, and he didn't just choose it as an issue as, as somebody, uh, you know, as a celebrity today might say, uh, okay, well, cerebral palsy is going to be my issue and I'm going to do a stand-up for it or, or, or be it a, uh, a benefit for it. I mean, he really understood the issue that he and Yoko had chosen and got right into it, knew all about it, was able to speak very, very intelligently about it, and uh, held his own. I I guess I'm the naysayer here. uh, As courageous and and terrific as what John and Yoko did, and as much attention as they brought to the the idea of peace, uh, unfortunately, I think the history of that time shows that nothing was going to stop the war criminals from continuing the war, uh, short of impeachment. And and um, by the by the middle of of 1971, with the draft lottery in the United States, effectively cutting the peace movement uh, into into pieces by making uh, the the possibility of draft less and less likely for uh, many teenaged Americans, uh, the, the anti-war movement almost began to dissolve. And and so while. Uh, John himself was a, an enormous target of, of the Nixon administration and the, and the Hoover FBI. I'm not sure that uh, he really did uh, do anything to bring the, uh, the end of the war about. It's very, very difficult to fight them. I, I agree completely with David, but I think uh, it, it put pressure on them to end, uh, end things uh, earlier than I think it would have. I, 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 admire, I admire their courage enormously. Uh, in 1972, Nixon won one of the biggest landslides in history, um, in part because of the cultural divide that uh, you know people like us and following John Lennon, we were on one side of that cultural divide and America was on the other. What can we say about John Lennon's influence on the political involvement of musicians from that point on? I mean, there seem to be a number of examples of artists uh, taking the risk that uh, John and Yoko did then. Any comments on that? Well, I think it's pivotal. I mean, if if he wasn't the first, he was darn close. And now uh, it's part of the rock star model. If you choose to be politically involved and have things to say, you will be listened to. You'll be a guy like Bono. You'll run around the world and talk to the Pope and talk to Barack Obama. Uh, I, I don't, you know, it might easily have arrived without John Lennon, but he was certainly first. And, and it's it helps to start at the top. <laughs> it helps that it was a Beatle doing it. I think it's also important to talk about uh, some North American artists who had a big platform and used it, uh, and I'm thinking specifically of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, starting with uh, with Stills' uh, hit song "For What It's Worth" about the uh, I think the Sunset Strip riots in Los Angeles. Uh, David Crosby, I believe, wrote "Almost Cut My Hair" when he heard the news that uh, Robert Kennedy had been assassinated. Uh, Graham Nash wrote uh, "Chicago" about the convention military madness, which clearly was was aimed at Vietnam. Uh, the song Wooden Ships, I, I believe, is is, is a, an anti-war song. And, and of course, after Kent State in, in May of 1970, uh, you have the epic single of, of, of Ohio and Find the Cost of Freedom. So, um, you know, in advance of what John did, uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash were already thinking along those lines. And Young, who wrote Ohio, and Young, and, and in '70, Young wrote Ohio. So I, I think that that uh, it was in the air that that uh, you know, as leaders of of a culture, it, it was it was natural to to speak out uh, uh, what was on everybody's mind. 
the only other thing I'll add is, is you know, given the environment that, that John and Yoko came to, um, both in Canada and then when they finally made it to New York, that, you know, it, it was very fresh in everybody's mind that Malcolm X and, and Dr. Martin Luther King and, and Senator Kennedy had been assassinated. There had been that much rioting in the streets in the wake of the King assassination or at the Chicago Convention, all the anti-war demonstrations, many of which resulted in tear gassing and, and clubbing and thousands of arrests. So the the notion of being afraid to speak out because somebody might point a gun at you uh, seems like a very rational fear for for John and Yoko to have in 1972, and and so when when Yoko talks about being concerned for their safety as as a, as a key reason for not wanting to be in Miami uh, for the Republican convention, there, there's no question that they had every reason to be concerned. And uh, hugely ironic that. They survived all of that, their bravery and all the front lines, the risks that they took. And then in 1980, something seemingly completely unconnected with all that took his life away. From Washington, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Good evening. The death of a man who sang and played the guitar overshadows the news from Poland around in Washington tonight. Former Beatle John Lennon, who was 40, was shot and killed last night outside his luxury apartment in New York. The alleged killer is an unemployed security guard and printer who had lived in Hawaii. News of Lennon's death touched off a wave of shock and mourning around the world. One of the things that, uh, in the course of making the movie, when we got to that portion of the film, uh, I, I sort of plaintively said to, to Yoko, you know, I really wanted to make a movie in which John didn't die in the end. But uh, you know, it was clear we had to follow the story to, to that moment. And, and of course, those great shots of people in Central Park and elsewhere singing Give Peace a Chance right after his death, you know, it, it really cements uh, how lasting uh, his contribution was. Yoko Ono, how do you feel about peace prospects today? Well, I think we're just getting there. I think about 99% of the world is ready for peace, except the 1% is very active, (laughs) very actively violent, maybe. But uh, I think eventually all of us will see that the violent people would probably get tired of it. Well, it's just better to be peaceful and enjoy life rather than risk the chance that maybe their house might be bombed or their children might be maimed or they can die. And, you know, the, the battle at dawn is the severest, they say. And this is, we are standing on the threshold of uh, the dawn of the new age. For my complete interviews with Yoko Ono and filmmakers David Leaf, Paul McGrath, and Alan Lyson, plus more information about their films, The U.S. vs. John Lennon and John and Yoko Give Peace a Song, visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. There are lots of other interesting links about the peace work of John Lennon and Yoko Ono there, all at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's where you can also order CD copies of many of our programs, sign up for a monthly newsletter or podcast, or listen online to any of the programs in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution dating back to 2003. 
It's also where you can find out how your financial contribution can help keep Peace Talks Radio on the air. So visit us at peacetalksradio.com. We also have support from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Engineering assistance from Roman Garcia. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Imagine no possession. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world you You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday.